Chapter 49 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 49. Kmichits, wishing to pass from Warsaw to Royal Prussia and Lithuania, had really no easy task in the very beginning, for not farther from Warsaw than Serotsk was a great Swedish force. Karl Gustav in his time had commanded it to take position there purposely to hinder the siege of the capital. But since Warsaw was captured, that army had nothing better to do than stop the divisions which Jan Kazimir might send to Lithuania or Prussia. At the head of the Swedish force were two Polish traitors, Radzejowski and Radzivil, with Douglas, a skilful warrior, trained as no other of the Swedish generals in sudden warfare. With them were two thousand chosen infantry and cavalry, with artillery of equal number. When the leaders heard of Kmichitz's expedition, since it was necessary for them in every event to approach Lithuania to save Tikotchin, besieged anew by Mazovians and men of Podlaski, they spread widely their nets for Pan Andrei in the triangle on the Bug between Serotsk on one side and Zwotoria on the other, and Ostrowenka at the point. Kmichitz had to pass through that triangle, for he was hurrying, and there lay his nearest road. He noticed in good season that he was in a net, but because he was accustomed to that method of warfare, he was not disconcerted. He counted on this, that the net was too greatly extended, and therefore the meshes in it were so widely stretched that he would be able to pass through them. What is more, though they hunted him diligently, not only did he double back, not only did he escape, but he hunted them. First, he passed the bug behind Serotsk, pushed along the bank of the river to Vishkov in Branschik. He cut to pieces three hundred horse sent on a reconnaissance, so that, as the prince had written, not a man returned to give account of the disaster. Douglas himself pushed him into Dugoshodvo, but Kmichitz, dispersing the cavalry, turned back, and instead of fleeing with all his might, went straight to the eyes of the enemy as far as the Narev, which he crossed by swimming. Douglas stood on the bank waiting for boats, but before they were brought, Kmichitz returned in the dark through the river, and striking the vanguard of the Swedes, brought panic and disorder to Douglas's whole division. The old general was amazed at this movement, but next day his amazement was greater when he learned that Kmichitz had gone around the whole army, and doubling back to the spot from which they had started him like a wild beast, had seized at Branschik Swedish wagons following the army, together with booty and money, cutting down at the same time fifty men of the infantry convoy. Sometimes the Swedes saw Kmichitz's Tartars for whole days with the naked eye on the edge of the horizon, 
but could not reach them. Still, Pan Andrei carried off something every moment. The Swedish soldiers were wearied, and the Polish squadrons, which held yet with Radziejowski, though formed of dissenters, served unwillingly. But the population served Kmichitz with enthusiasm. He knew every movement of the smallest scouting party, of each wagon which went forward or remained in the rear. Sometimes it seemed that he was playing with the Swedes, but that was tiger play. He spared no prisoners. He ordered the Tartars to hang them, for the Swedes did the same. At times you would say that irrepressible fury had come upon him, for he hurled himself with blind insolence on superior forces. An insane man leads that division, said Douglas. Or a mad dog, said Radziejowski. Boguslav thought he was one and the other, but underneath both a consummate soldier. The prince related boastingly to the generals that he had hurled that cavalier twice to the earth with his own hand. In fact, Babinich attacked Boguslav most furiously. He sought him evidently, the pursued became himself the pursuer. Douglas divined that there must be some personal hatred in the matter. The prince did not deny this, though he gave no explanations. He paid Babinich with the same coin, for following the example of Horansky, he put a price on his head, and when that availed nothing, he thought to take advantage of Kmichitz's hatred and through it bring him into a trap. It is a shame for us to bother so long with this robber, said he to Douglas and Radziejowski. He is prowling around us like a wolf around a sheepfold. I will go against him with a small division as a decoy, and when he strikes me, I will detain him till you come up. Then we will not let the crawfish out of the net. Douglas, whom this chase had long since annoyed, made only small opposition, asserting that he could not and should not expose the life of such a great dignitary and relative of kings to the chance of being seized by one marauder. But when Boguslav insisted, he agreed. It was determined that the prince should go with a detachment of five hundred troopers, that each man should have behind him a foot soldier with a musket. This stratagem was to lead Babinich into error. He will not restrain himself when he hears of only five hundred horsemen, and he will attack undoubtedly, said the prince. When the infantry spit in his eyes, his Tartars will scatter like sand. He will fall himself, or we shall take him alive. This plan was carried out quickly and with great accuracy. First, news was sent out, two days in advance, that a party of five hundred horse was to march under Prince Boguslav. The generals calculated with certainty that the local inhabitants would inform Babinich of this. In fact, they did inform him. The prince marched in the deep and dark night toward Vanosh and Yelonka, past the river at Cherovino, and leaving his cavalry in the open field, stationed his infantry in the neighbouring groves, whence they might issue unexpectedly. Meanwhile Douglas was to push along by the bank of the Narev, 
feigning to march on Ostrowenka. Radzeyovsky was in advance with the lighter cavalry from Ksenopole. Neither of the three leaders knew well where Babinich was at that moment, for it was impossible to learn anything from the peasants, and the cavalry were not able to seize Tartars. But Douglas supposed that Babinich's main forces were in Snyadovo, and he wished to surround them, so that if Babinich should move on Boguslav, he would intercept him on the side of the Lithuanian boundary and cut off his retreat. Everything seemed to favour the Swedish plans. Kmichits was really in Snyadovo, and barely had the news of Boguslav's approach reached him when he fell at once into the forest, so as to come out unexpectedly near Cherevino. Douglas, turning aside from the Narev, struck in a few days upon the traces of the Tartar march, and advanced by the same road, therefore from the rear after Babinich. Heat tormented the horses greatly, as well as the men encased in iron armour. But the general advanced without regard to those hindrances, absolutely certain that he would come upon Babinich's army unexpectedly and in time of battle. Finally, after two days' march, he came so near Cherevino that the smoke of the cottages was visible. Then he halted, and occupying all the passages and narrow pathways, waited. Some officers wished to advance as a forlorn hope and strike at once, but Douglas restrained them, saying, Babinich, after attacking the prince, when he sees that he has to do not with cavalry alone, but also with infantry, will be obliged to retreat, and as he can retreat only by the old road, he will fall, as it were, into our open arms. In fact, it seemed that all they had to do was to listen, and soon Tartar howling would be heard, and the first discharges of musketry. Meanwhile, one day passed, and in the forests of Cherevino it was as silent as if a soldier's foot had never been in it. Douglas grew impatient, and toward night sent forward a small party to the field, enjoining on them the utmost caution. The party returned in the depth of the night, without having seen or done anything. At daylight, Douglas himself advanced with his whole force. After a march of some hours, he reached a place filled with traces of the presence of soldiers. His men found remnants of biscuits, broken glass, bits of clothing, and a belt with cartridges such as the Swedish infantry use. It became certain that Boguslav's infantry had stopped in that place, but they were not visible anywhere. Farther on in the damp forest, Douglas's vanguard found many tracks of heavy cavalry horses, but on the edge, tracks of Tartar ponies. Still farther on lay the carcass of a horse from which the wolves had recently torn out the entrails. About a furlong beyond, they found a Tartar arrow without the point, but with the shaft entire. Evidently, Boguslav was retreating, and Babinich was following him. Douglas understood that something unusual must have happened, but what was it? To this there was no answer. Douglas fell to pondering. Suddenly his meditation was interrupted by an officer from the vanguard. 
your worthiness said the officer through the thicket about a furlong away are some men in a crowd they do not move as if they were on watch i have brought the guard to a halt so as to report to you cavalry or infantry asked douglas infantry there are four or five of them in a group it was not possible to count them accurately for the branches hide them but they seem yellow like our musketeers douglas pressed his horse with his knees pushed forward quickly to the vanguard and advanced with it through the thickets now thinner were to be seen in the remoter deep forest a group of soldiers perfectly motionless standing under a tree they are ours they are ours said douglas the prince must be in the neighbourhood it is a wonder to me said the officer they are on watch and none of them calls though we march noisily here the thickets ended and the forest was clean of undergrowth the men approached and saw four persons standing in a group one at the side of the other as if they were looking at something on the ground from the head of each one rose a dark strip directly upward your worthiness said the officer at once these men are hanging that is true answered douglas they sprang forward and stood for a while near the corpses four foot soldiers were hanging together by ropes like a bunch of thrushes their feet barely an inch above the ground for they were on the lower branches douglas looked at them indifferently enough then said as if to himself now we know that the prince and babinich have passed this way then he fell to thinking again for he did not know well whether to continue on by the forest path or go out on the ostrowenka highway half an hour later they found two other corpses evidently they were marauders or sick men whom babinich's tartars had seized while pursuing the prince but why did the prince retreat douglas knew him too well that is both his daring and his military experience to admit even for a moment that the prince had not sufficient reasons therefore something must have intervened only next day was the affair explained pan bies had come from prince boguslav with a party of thirty horse to report that jan kazimir had sent beyond the bug against douglas the full hetman pan goshevsky with six thousand lithuanians and tartar horse we learned this said pan bies before babinich came up for he advanced very carefully and attacked frequently therefore annoyingly goshevsky is twenty or twenty-five miles distant when the prince received the tidings he was forced to retreat in haste so as to join radzeyovsky who might be cut to pieces easily but by marching quickly we made the junction the prince sent out at once parties of a few tens of men in every direction with a report to your worthiness many of them will fall into tartar or peasant hands but in such a war it cannot be otherwise where are the prince and radzeyovsky ten miles from here at the river did the prince bring back all his forces he was forced to leave the infantry which is coming through the thicket forest so as to escape the tartars such cavalry as the tartar is made to go through the densest forests i do not expect to see that infantry again 
but no one is to blame, and the prince acted like an experienced leader. The prince threw out one party the most considerable to Ostrowenka, to lead Goshevsky into error. He will go to Ostrowenka at once, thinking that our whole force is there. That is well, said Douglas, comforted. We will manage Goshevsky. And he marched without delay to join Boguslav and Radzeyovsky. They met that same day, to the great delight especially of Radzeyovsky, who feared captivity more than death, for he knew that as a traitor and the originator of all the misfortunes of the Commonwealth, he would have to give a terrible answer. But now, after the junction with Douglas, the Swedish army had more than 4,000 men. Therefore it was able to offer an effective resistance to the forces of the full Hetman. He had, it is true, 6,000 cavalry. But Tartars, except those of Babinich, who were trained, could not be used in offensive battle, and Pan Goshevsky himself, though a skilled and learned warrior, was not able, like Charnetsky, to inspire men with an enthusiasm which nothing could resist. But Douglas was at a loss to understand why Jan Kazimir should send the full hetman beyond the Bug. The Swedish king with the elector was marching on Warsaw. A general battle must therefore follow, sooner or later, and though Jan Kazimir was at the head of a force superior in numbers to the Swedes and the Brandenburgers, still six thousand men formed too great a force for the King of Poland to set aside voluntarily. It is true that Goshevsky had saved Babinich from trouble, but still the King did not need to send out a whole division to the rescue of Babinich. Hence there was in this expedition some secret object which the Swedish general, despite all his penetration, could not divine. In the letter of the King of Sweden sent a week later, great alarm was evident, and as it were astonishment, caused by that expedition. But a few words explained the reasons of this. According to the opinion of Carl Gustav, the hetman was not sent to attack Douglas's army, nor to go to Lithuania to aid the uprising there. For in Lithuania the Swedes, as it was, were not able to do anything but to threaten royal Prussia, namely the eastern part of it, which was completely stripped of troops. The calculation is, wrote the king, to make the elector waver in faithfulness to the Treaty of Marienburg and to us, which may easily happen, since the elector is ready to enter into alliance with Christ against the devil, and at the same time with the devil against Christ, so as to win something from both. The letter ended by enjoining on Douglas to strive with all his forces not to let the hetman go to Prussia, who, if he cannot reach there in the course of a few weeks, will be forced beyond doubt to return to Warsaw. Douglas saw that the task given him did not surpass his powers at all, not so long before he had met with a certain success in opposing Charnetsky himself, therefore Goshevsky was not terrible. The Swedish general did not hope, it is true, to crush Goshevsky's division, but he felt certain that he would be able to stop him and curb all his movements. In fact, from that moment began very skilful approaches of the two armies, which, 
avoiding on both sides a general battle, endeavoured each to flank the other. Both leaders emulated each other, but the experienced Douglas was in so far superior that he did not let Goshevsky advance beyond Ostroenka. But Babinich, saved from Boguslav's attack, did not hasten to join the Lithuanian division, for he occupied himself with great zeal on that infantry which Boguslav, in his hurried march to Radzeyovsky, was forced to leave behind. Babinich's Tartars, guided by local woodmen, pursued night and day, finishing every moment the incautious or those who dropped into the rear. Lack of provisions forced the Swedes at last to separate into small detachments which could find food more easily. This was all that Babinich was waiting for. He divided his forces into three commands, under lead of Akbar Ulan, Soroka and himself, and in a few days he destroyed the greater part of that infantry. It was an untiring hunt after men in forest thickets, in willows, in reeds, a hunt full of noise, uproar, shouting, shooting and death. Widely did it spread the glory of Babinich's name among the Mazovians. Bands collected and joined Goshevsky at Ostroenka itself, when the full hetman, whose march was only a demonstration, received a command from the king to march back to Warsaw. For a short period only could Babinich rejoice with his acquaintances, namely with Zagwoba and Vodiovsky, who at the head of the Lauda squadron attended the hetman. But they greeted one another very cordially, for great friendship and intimacy existed already between them. The young colonels were sharply annoyed that they could not act now against Boguslav, but Zagwoba consoled them by pouring frequently into their glasses and saying, That is nothing. My head has been working since May over stratagems, and I have never racked it over anything in vain. I have a number ready, very excellent stratagems, but there is no time to apply them, unless at Warsaw, whither we are all marching. I must go to Prussia, said Babinich, and cannot be at Warsaw. Can you reach Prussia? asked Vodiovsky. As God is in heaven, I shall spring through, and I promise you sacredly to make not the worst cabbage hash, for I shall say to my Tartars, Riot, my soul! They would be glad even here to draw the knife across people's throats. But I have told them that pay for every violence is the rope. But in Prussia I will give way even to my own will. Why should I not spring through? You were not able, but that is another thing, for it is easier to stop a large force than such a party as mine, with which it is easy to hide. More than once was I sitting in the rushes, and Douglas's men passed right there, knowing nothing of me. Douglas too will surely follow you, and leave the field free to me. But, as we hear, you have wearied him out too, said Pan Michal with satisfaction. Ah, the scoundrel, added Zagwoba. He had to change his shirt every day, he sweated so. You never stole up to Hovansky better than to him, and I must acknowledge that I could not have done better myself, though, in his time, Konitzpolsky said that Zagwoba in partisan warfare was unsurpassed. 
It seems to me, said Pan Mihal to Kmichitz, that if Douglas returns, he will leave Boguslav here to attack you. God grant it! I have the same hope, answered Kmichitz quickly. Were I to seek him, and he me, we should find each other. He will not pass through me a third time, and if he does, then I shall not rise again. I remember your secrets well, and all the Lubni thrusts I have in memory like our father. Every day, too, I try them with Soroka so as to train my hand. What are stratagems good for? exclaimed Pan Mihao. The sabre is the main thing. This maxim touched Zagwaba somewhat, therefore he said at once, Every windmill thinks that the main thing is to whirl its wings. Do you know why, Mihao? Because it has chaff under its roof. That is, in its head, military art rests on stratagems. If not, Roch Kowalski might be Grand Hetman, and you full Hetman. And what is Pan Kowalski doing? asked Kmichitz. Pan Kowalski has now an iron helmet on his head, and justly, for cabbage is best out of a pot. He has grown rich on plunder in Warsaw, has come into good repute, and gone to the hussars, to Prince Polubinski, and also is to be able to put a spear into Karl Gustav. He comes every day to our tent, and stares to see if the neck of the decanter is sticking out of the straw. I cannot break that lad of drinking. Good example goes for nothing, but I prophesied to him that this desertion of the Louder Squadron would turn out evil. The rogue, the thankless fellow, in return for all the benefits which I have shown him, such a son for a lance. But did you rear him? My dear sir, do not make me a bear trainer. To Sapieha, who asked me the same question, I answered that he and Roch had the same preceptor, but not me, for I in youthful years was a cooper, and knew how to set staves very well. To begin with, you would not dare to tell that to Sapieha, said Vovodyovsky, and secondly, though you grumble at Kowalski, you love him as the apple of your eye. I prefer him to you, Pan Mihao, for I could never endure maybugs, nor soapy little fellows who at the sight of the first woman who comes along play antics like German dogs. Or like those monkeys in the Kazanovsky palace with which you are carrying on war. Oh, laugh, laugh, you can take Warsaw without me next time. Was it you, then, who took Warsaw? But who captured the Krakow Gate? Who invented captivity for the generals? They are sitting now on bread and water in Zamosht. And when Wittenberg looks at Wrangel, he says, Zagwoba put us here, and both fall to weeping. If Sapieha were not ill, and if he were present, he would tell you who first drew the Swedish claw from the skin of Warsaw. For God's sake, said Kmichitz, do this for me. Send news of that battle for which they are preparing at Warsaw. I shall be counting the days and nights on my fingers till I know something certain. Zagwoba put his finger to his forehead. Listen to my forecast, said he, for what I tell you will be accomplished as surely as that this glass is standing before me. Is it not standing before me? It is, it is. Speak on. We shall either lose this general battle, 
or we shall win it. Every man knows that, put in Vordiovsky. You might be silent, Mihao, and learn something. Supposing that we lose this battle, do you know what will happen? You see you do not know, for you are moving those little awls under your nose like a rabbit. Well, I will tell you that nothing will happen. Kmichitz, who was very quick, sprang up, struck his glass on the table, and said, You are beating around the bush. I say nothing will happen, repeated Zagwaba. You are young, therefore you do not know. As affairs now stand, our king, our dear country, our armies may lose fifty battles one after another, and the war will go on in the old fashion. The nobles will assemble, and with them the lower ranks. But if they do not succeed one time, they will another, until the enemy's force has melted away. But when the Swedes lose one great battle, the devil will take them without salvation, and with them the elector to boot. Here Zagoba grew animated, emptied his glass, struck it on the table, and continued. Listen, for you will not hear this from every mouth, for not everyone knows how to take a general view of things. Many a man is thinking, what is waiting for us now? How many battles? How many defeats? Which, in warring with Karl, are not unlikely. How many tears? How much bloodshed? How many grievous paroxysms! And many a one will doubt and blaspheme against the mercy of God and the Most Holy Mother. But I tell you this, do you know what is waiting for those vandal enemies? Destruction! Do you know what is waiting for us? Victory! If they beat us one hundred times, very well, but we will beat them the hundred and first time, and that will be the end. When he had said this, Zagwaba closed his eyes for a moment, but soon opened them. He looked ahead with gleaming vision, and suddenly shouted with the whole force of his breast, Victory! Victory! Kmichitz was flushed from delight. In God's name he is right. He speaks justly. It cannot be otherwise. Such an end has to come. It must be acknowledged that you are not lacking here, said Vordiovsky, putting his finger on his forehead. The Commonwealth may be occupied, but to stay in it is impossible, so at last the Swedes will have to go out. Well, is that it? I am not lacking, said Zagwaba, rejoiced at the praise. If that is true, then I will prophesy further. God is with the just. Here he turned to Kmichitz. You will finish the traitor Rajivil. You will go to Taurogi, recover the maiden, marry her, rear posterity. May I have the pip on my tongue if this will not happen as I say. But for God's sake, don't smother me. Zagwaba was rightfully cautious, for Kmichitz seized him in his arms, raised him, and began to hug him so that the old man's eyes were bursting out. He had barely come to his feet and recovered breath, when Pan Mihao, greatly delighted, seized him by the hand. It is my turn. Tell what awaits me. God bless you, Mihao. Your pretty tufted lark will hatch out a whole brood. Never fear. Oof. Vivat, cried Vovodyovsky. But first we will make an end of the Swedes, added Zagwaba. 
We will, we will, cried the young colonels, shaking their sabres. Vivat! Victory! End of chapter 49 Recording by David Granville Young